I'm Randy. And I'm Claire. And you're listening to Killer Vibes, a true crime podcast. So welcome to part three of the American serial killer Ted Bundy saga. We left off with a really horrible phone conversation between Ted again. That's and kind his of intended. Insane. So Diane and Ted were engaged in late... 1973 and he starts to be a jackass and so she leaves for California and in February she gives him a call and he says this really terrible sentence to her this is literally the only let's thing do he the says. phone call let's do the phone call yeah okay, you be cool. Ted Bundy I, okay of course <laughs> okay so you're Diane and you're calling me so ring me up ring 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 hello Ted Theodore when are we getting married? <laughs> Diane, I have no idea what you mean. Click. <laughs> um. So, yeah. So, Diane would say to uh, police later when he was being investigated that he was, he didn't even sound like himself. Like, he was completely monotone and he freaked her out. So, that was it. That was kind of the end of their relationship. And all of this buildup, like, he had been preparing to break up with Diane in this way. Just like she had, she didn't break up with him like that. Like that's a little much, but um, he was so obsessed with her. He like couldn't let her go at all. And so when he, when they broke up, he was so impacted by that, that he had to like make this obsessive plan that would eventually lead him to being a successful person, get her attention. They would be in a relationship and then he would break up with her in this way. So so rude. I know. And just so that everyone knows, the phone call that Diane made was in February of 1974. And by this point, Linda Ann Healy had already gone missing and she would be his first confirmed murder victim. So he had attacked Karen Sparks three days after Diane left for California. And then two weeks before Diane made that call, Linda Ann Healy had gone missing. I really think that she was the one yeah. that made him go crazy. Mm-hmm. And like we had mentioned before, she is what all of his victims look like. Mm-hmm. There are a few who are blonde, but they all look, they're all very beautiful women. They're all in their 20s, except for a few younger victims later. But yeah, she's important to this. And I don't think she realized how important she was until later. And I don't even think police realized how important she was. You know, that's obviously why she's kept her privacy during all of this. So I have a little quote from Anne Rule about Diane as well, because I, and it's really poignant and I wanted to say it. So the victims were all prototypes for Diane. None of them were random choices. He had to keep killing Diane over and over again, hoping that each time would be the time that would bring surcrease, which basically just means that would bring an end, a ceasement to his obsession with her. And I think that basically describes what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, he loved her and hated her all at the same time. Yeah, like maybe if he killed someone who looked like her, he would feel satisfied. But right. it didn't work. It didn't and work at all. He had to just keep doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So from here on out, Bundy is a completely different person. He's sort of like unsuspecting to all of the people who are still involved in his life. But he was killing people. So obviously he was different <laughs> yeah. than before. So... Uh, Like we said, I have a little short blip about all of the victims, all of the named victims. 
So we'll be going through that. And then in addition, we'll be like throwing in everything that's happening in his life. But I'll be going in chronological order. So everything that I'm talking about is like from January of 1974 all the way down until his execution in um, January of 1989. So get ready. Let's do it. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, we're going to start with the attacks in Washington and Oregon in 1974. The first alleged victim of Bundy was Karen Sparks, who is an 18-year-old University of Washington student. Luckily for Karen, she survived her attack. Her room was in the basement, which was easily accessible by an outside door. When she didn't come up for breakfast on the morning of January 9th, 1974, her roommates went to check on her, only to find that her head had been bashed in by a metal pole and then... That pole was forced inside of her vagina, and it messed up a whole bunch of her organs. The attack also damaged her brain. So, unfortunately, she hasn't been able to speak out about the attack, and she wouldn't be involved in any of the testimonies against um, Bundy. Also, I just wanted to mention that the reason that I talked about Bundy in the Arliss Perry episode was because of the way that this particular victim was situated, because in the Arliss Perry episode— um, she died with a candlestick inserted into her body in a similar fashion. Mm-hmm. So they thought about him, but he was ruled out because he was buying gas in Utah at the time mm-hmm. that Arliss Perry was attacked. So I just wanted to mention that because I was a little unclear about the connection between Bundy and Arliss Perry because his, that wasn't his MO at all, like the way that he Arliss had died. But now that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Linda Ann Healy was a local ski radio reporter for Western Washington. She was 21 in 1974 and a senior psychology major at the University of Washington. She had long brown hair, which she parted down the middle, and her broadcast was early in the morning, so she didn't really stay out late, and she was almost never late for work. She was a really efficient student. Everybody loved her on the radio. All of the officers who were involved would talk about, we always recognize Linda's voice. On Thursday, January 31st, Linda had a really normal day. She went to work, went to school. She grabbed a pint with two of her friends and then headed home where she spoke to her boyfriend on the phone and then went to sleep in her bedroom, which is located in the basement of this house. She had a few roommates, and one of them, Barbara Little, got home late and passed by Linda's room around 1 a.m. She said that the lights were off and no noise was coming from the room. In the morning, though, Barbara heard Linda's alarm go off at 5.30, and then hers went off at 6, but Linda's alarm was still buzzing. So Barbara went into her room and saw that the bed was still made and that Linda was gone. Barbara thought Linda was at work, but the phone rang a few minutes later, and it was Linda's boss asking why Linda hadn't showed up at work yet. So Barbara started to get a little worried and looked around the house. She noticed that the basement door was unlocked, which was something... And none of the roommates would have done. And um, Linda's bike was still at the house, and she used it in the mornings to get to work. So Barbara just decided to call the police, which was a smart decision. Police arrived. They examined the room and found that under Linda's pillow, there was a significant amount of dried blood. It was fresh blood, like it hadn't been there previously. And the police determined that the amount of blood was significant enough to indicate that the person was probably hit until they were unconscious, but it wasn't enough to determine whether or not someone had been killed there. Linda was ruled a missing persons case and was only the first in a list of six other women who would go missing in Washington and Oregon. In Olympia, Washington, Donna Manson was a 19-year-old 
student at Evergreen College. She was a flute player and this like tiny little fairy of a woman. Like she's so tiny. She was <laughs> five foot and only a hundred pounds. Um, she hitchhiked a lot, which was like a normal thing to do in the Pacific Northeast at this time. Um, and thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, Pacific Northwest. And she would go see her friends because Evergreen College was kind of like farther away from Seattle because she was in Olympia. Um, and she was kind of like a little witchy woman. Like she loved alchemy. She was really into witchcraft. She had tarot cards, all this stuff Ooh. and was described as a very epic free spirit. So on March 12th, only two months after Linda went missing, Donna vanished. She had been heading to a jazz concert on campus and left her dorm room at 7 p.m. Her roommates had a very accurate description of her clothing because apparently she had changed several times before she headed out to this concert. She never made it to the concert, and her friend who was there um, cooperated that, but she also never made it back to the dorm rooms. Police ruled her as a runaway, but because she had left her camera behind, which was something her friend said Donna never would have done because she went everywhere with the camera, they decided that she would be oh, a missing so person. Cool. I know. She's so sweet. I want to be your friend. Um, I know, sucks. right? So there was a set of human remains found near Mount Rainier in August of 1978. Although they have not been confirmed as Donna's, so some fishermen found a skull at the base of Mount Rainier, and the police would comb the area and found a partial skeleton with a shirt that did look like the one Donna had been wearing the day she went missing in March. However, the remains and all of the information, including dental records for Donna, were lost, according to the Pierce County Police Sheriff's Department. That's annoying. They lost a human skeleton. <laughs> I remember when you were researching this because I was sitting yeah. beside you doing something else. Yeah. <laughs> and then you like took your headphones out and you were like, what? How? How? And I was How like, do you lose a human skeleton? I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Um, because like Donna, um, her story is a little confusing and there's like conflicting information out there just because Bundy would confess to her murder and he would say, well, her body is in the Cascade Mountains and her body would be found after a whole bunch of other bodies had been found. So it was just kind of like confusing at figuring out where Donna had ended up um, and why she was like an absolute confirmed victim of Bundy's. And so hmm. because they lost her remains, they couldn't ever compare DNA or dental records hmm. or anything like that. But like I said, Bundy did confess to her murder, which is why she's on the list of known victims. And also, like I said, he said her body was in the Cascade Mountains, which is the same area where her skull was found. And that would be a huge deal in the Bundy confession tapes is that he would lead police to bodies and would confirm identities of random bone fragments as well. Okay, this is going to sound gross, but okay. how did he remember exactly where he put all of these bodies? Because there's so many of them. Right. So he actually had... Take a little note? Well, notebook. He, he had a dump site. It was on Taylor Mountain, which is in the Cascade Mountains, and he would leave eight bodies there. So they were all in that same area. Okay. So, he so didn't like have some of like, them are in other areas, but a yeah. lot are in... It's not like he had like okay. latitude or longitude. He just was like, they're in the Cascade Mountains. That's where I dumped them. And that would be accurate. Which was another thing why we can say he was not lying about the location of these bodies during his tapes. So that's Donna uh, Manson, not related to 
uh, Charles Manson. Um, <laughs> I remember Randy read the name when I was doing yeah, like, she was the first freaking list. out about this body yes, thing, and she was like Manson. I was like Manson. <laughs> Not what Charles are you doing? Manson. What are you? Tell me about. It's like oh, psych. <laughs> I'm doing the the Manson murders. <laughs> um, no, I would, I would be so I mad would, at you. I would never take that from you ever. So. Susan Elaine Rancourt was a freshman at Central Washington State College. The university was in Ellensburg and was like 120 miles outside of Seattle. Susan didn't look like a Bundy victim. She had short blonde hair and blue eyes. She lived on campus and was like a super cautious person. She jogged, took karate classes, and was also like an active part of her campus community. She was just really well-liked. She was another short person. She was 5'2 and only 120 pounds, so like my size. And um, she hated the dark. This She is me. This Susan and I are the same. <laughs> so she hated the dark and would never go out alone if she could help it. But on April 17th, 1974, she went to go do some laundry and then went to go meet up with her professor. Um, not professor, advisor. After her meeting, she had plans to meet up with her friends and go see a movie at nine o'clock. She did go to the meeting with her advisor, but she was never seen after she left her advisor's office. Her friend ended up going to the movie without her, but when Susan didn't show up at the dorm rooms that night, her boyfriend immediately called the police. After Susan disappeared... Um, <laughs> I kind of yeah. like how her friend was like, I'll just go without like, you. <laughs> what the hell? I mean, like, maybe she really wanted to see the movie. I would do that. I would. If you didn't show up to a movie that we were going to go see, I'd be like, well, I want to see I'll this. I'll go by myself. So, like, Fine. I guess I'll report you missing after this hour and a half. <laughs> this is important. Um, Yeah, exactly. If it was the Ted Bundy movie, I would do it. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even kidding. <gasps> or, okay, I'm sorry. Pause. I'm sorry. Yes. Since we mentioned Manson, mm-hmm. the trailer came out yes! for, for Once Upon a Time oh in Hollywood. Oh, my God. Yes. And I actually so exciting. was reading that the person who has been cast as Manson in the new episodes of Mindhunter mm-hmm. is the same person casted as Manson in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He must look exactly like Manson. Well, it showed like a little clip of him. Or not mm-hmm. a, it, it, like... It's a very what, brief A little moment. shot, yeah. yeah. And it, it's not like he looks exactly like him. I mean, he does, but... He probably plays he, him really well. I know, and I'm like... How cool is that that, like, two separate casting agencies out of all the people? Imagine Mm -hmm. how many people showed up to both of those auditions. Oh, God, I can only imagine. And they both picked, like, the same guy. I hope that they, like, weren't talking to each other about it. And it just happened that way. Yeah, those are, I mean, like, Tarantino and Netflix, I don't think they talk very often. Yeah, but I mean, that's so so cool. Okay, sorry. Um, That movie looks really good. Go watch the trailer. Yes. So after Susan disappeared, a few different women came forward to say they had seen a handsome man in a sling around campus. One girl actually talked to him and helped him carry books back to his car, which was a Volkswagen bug. No. I know. Um, This person said there wasn't a passenger seat in this car, and she kind of freaked out a little bit about that and then he was kind of off and so she literally just like set the books on his car ran in the other direction hell yeah yeah so you get some weird vibes i know right just like don't just go. run away yeah just the second you get those vibes and I'd apologize like, later if it was actually okay. fine <laughs> yeah like honestly I wouldn't, like, if somebody thought I was weird and I was like, could you help me with this? And they, like, ran away from me, I wouldn't even be offended. I'd be like, that's okay. Yeah, and then, like, if the person is offended, it lets them know that they're creepy. Yes, it's like, so it's maybe I shouldn't do this. Purposeful. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. 
Roberta Kathleen Parks was a student at Oregon State University. She was from California and missed it quite a bit. Um, she sort of hated and OS. What? She missed it. She missed California. Oh, California. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so she hated OSU and didn't really want to be there anymore. And on May 6, 1974, she walked to the Student Union Building for coffee around 11 a.m. She told her roommate that she would be back in an hour, but this was the last time her roommate would ever see Roberta alive. Police at first suspected she had actually committed suicide. Roberta was not happy, and she had just gotten news about her father, and he had suffered a major heart attack, like, after they had just had a huge fight with each other. So she felt very, very guilty. He did survive the heart attack. Okay. um, But she was upset about that, um, and she also suffered from intense depression as well, and her friends would get worried about her mental state quite often. This, unfortunately, wouldn't be the case, and um, it wouldn't be until 1975 with discovery of her body that police found out that she had been a murder victim and not a suicide victim. Brenda Carol Ball was 22 and lived in South King near Bruin, Washington with two roommates. On the night of May 31st into the morning of June 1st, Brenda was at a local tavern alone, and at 2 a.m. she was looking for a ride home. She had asked a band member who had been playing that night for a ride, but he was heading in the wrong direction. She was last seen talking to a handsome stranger outside the bar with brown hair and his arm in a sling. I hate I hate that sling. It, <laughs> I hate it. So much. It pops up so much. Um, it wasn't until 19 days later that her roommates would file a missing persons report. This was mostly because she was another free spirited person and would sometimes go on like spontaneous trips. So her being missing wasn't like a super big deal. But they checked her bank statements and discovered that she hadn't withdrawn any money in the 19 days that she had been gone. They ruled out that she'd kind of been on like a spontaneous vacation and they turned her case into a missing persons report. This next victim is actually quite a pivotal part for Bundy and I have a lot of information about her because when he would go into detail about all of the murders, this particular murder is very vivid. Like he would describe it with the utmost detail. I mean, some like of his the, favorite murder. It wasn't it wasn't his favorite. He had a total breakdown moment and I'll talk to you about it it's really horrible listening to him talk to you about the murder of this particular young woman but I did listen to the entire segment and it's like a 30 minute segment of the tapes and I have it so I will post it in the sources if you guys want to go and listen to it but I am going to basically say all of the parts that are important for it. So if you don't want to listen to it, that's totally fine. Georgianne Hawkins was 18 and was finishing up her semester at the University of Washington. She called her mom on June 10th, 1974, to say that she was worried about her Spanish test the next morning. The same night, she was at a party for her sorority, but she called it a little early so that she could go and study. Um, She said she was going to go stop by her boyfriend's frat house, which was just a few doors down, and then head back to her sorority house and study for her test. She got to the frat house and talked with her boyfriend, borrowed a few notes, and walked out the back door. She was about 40 feet from her house um, after eyewitnesses had seen her walking, but she never made it to the door. So it's just one of those, like, just like a freak kidnapping within the span of, like, 10 feet from where her house was. Uh, um, yeah. So, so close. I know. So her roommates immediately got worried and they called the police after learning Georgianne wasn't still at the frat house because it only takes like five minutes to walk from one location to the other. So she should have been home by then. 
Because of all of the things that had been happening over the course of the year, police would be very diligent, but they found no trace of her. Bundy said her remains were near Lake Sammamish Park, which is where the next two victims would be found, just a few miles from his major jump site on Taylor Mountain. Although her remains are identified by Bundy, they were not ID'd by the police. Bundy would say in his confession a few days before his execution that Georgianne had regained consciousness after they had reached Taylor Mountain. Bundy's MO would be like he would have a crowbar. He would knock the the person he was abducting on the head. He would put them into his Volkswagen and lay their bodies down where the front seat should have been. And then he would drive them up to his dump site where he would strangle, rape and bury them. So that was what he did with the majority of his victims. So while he was taking Georgianne up to the mountain, she regained consciousness. And when he took her out of the car and put her in handcuffs, he said, and I quote, she was quite lucid at this point. And she asked him if she, he was going to make her late for her Spanish test in the morning. Isn't that sad? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was like, I love that she's concerned about that. I know. I cried a little bit the first time I listened to it. In the tapes, Bundy said it was odd what people would talk about in these situations. He says he says it like it was like a normal situation for people to be in. Like, oh, it's so weird what what all these people said in this particular situation. They would always had odd things to say. In addition to her asking if he was going to make her late for her test, she would say that people call her George and sort of be a little out of it. So Bundy thought that she was hallucinating or something because she kept on rambling on about things. But they were like just her daily life things. Like she had no idea what was happening. And she was like introducing herself all the time. Like, hi, people call me George. Like, I have a Spanish test in the morning. Are you going to make me like Because he it? like damaged her brain. Yeah, because yeah. he hit her over the head with a crowbar. Like the creepy serial killer he was. In addition to that, he said that she would say to him that her pants were too big and that there was a safety pin holding them up. And there were all of these just little details that also confirmed that she was a Bundy victim because her body wasn't positively ID'd, but she is absolutely one of his victims because of all of these statements from him. It's a lot to swallow, this conversation that he has about Georgianne. And in addition to talking about Georgianne, this is also the part in the recording where he would say he dismembered about six of the bodies of these women, including Georgianne's body, which is why we don't have a full skeleton. So with that, we're going to kind of end part three. I didn't even Um, realize it was 25 (laughs) minutes. I'm so wrapped up. I know, right? (laughs) Um, So yeah, so Georgianne, um, I'll talk a little bit about why... Georgianne was so important and um, what Bundy did after that. So thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. Bye. Bye.